0: Growing up in youth group, my youth group had regular activities. The activity I remember most vividly were our yearly backpacking trips. For those of you not familiar with backpacking, this isn't just hiking. It involves hiking, but it is much more than hiking. This is putting all things necessary for food and shelter in an enormous backpack. Tent, food, cooking water filters... 50 or 60 pounds worth, and putting it on your back and going and walking around up and down mountains for day after day after day, you will walk for miles, set up camp for the night, get up, put it all back in the backpack, and the next day do it again. The first backpacking trip I went on was when I was 14 years old. It was a nine day trip in which we hiked a 90 mile loop, averaging about 10 miles a day. Now, I, I wrestled that year in high school, and so I know my weight. I was wrestling 90 pounds, which meant I had to stay under 90 in order to wrestle. And that summer, I remember putting my backpack on the scale, and it was 60 pounds. Now, this trip took place in a Pennsylvania state park with well-walked and well-marked trails. And these trails were marked with blazes, that is, brightly colored paint slapped on the sides of trees, scattered regularly enough so that as you walked, you always knew that you were headed in the right direction, that you were on the right path. Remember, very clearly, this 90-mile trip, it was orange blazes that we had to stay on. And at times, you'd see blue blazes come across as another trail, crossed it, or green, And on these trips, there would at some point be a place in the trail where the blazes began to be hard to see, a part of the trail that was not so well traveled, a stretch in the trail where the blazes were fading and the path was difficult to follow. Or at other times, the person leading the line of backpackers would lose focus and continue following what looked like the trail and only after some time realize that there were no more trail markers. And all of us who were blindly following the leader would get angry, and all of us would have to turn around and go back and find where we had gotten off the path. Sometimes yards, sometimes miles. The Bible uses the picture of a path or a road to describe the life of the Christian, to describe the life of faith. God's people, those who know Him, enter into a relationship with Him by faith, through believing what He says, believing His promises, and then after experiencing the new birth, being born again, God calls us to a new life. A life that lives out the truth that we now know about God and about every aspect of life. We now live out this truth. We are to, as the Apostle John puts it, walk in the truth. We've begun a study in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Proverbs which is God's education course in true wisdom. Wisdom is a major theme, probably the major theme in the book of Proverbs. And wisdom in the book of Proverbs is skill or ability. But it's a particular kind of skill. Wisdom in Proverbs is skill in knowing God. And then skill in relating to others and in living life as God intended here on earth. Such wisdom ultimately comes from God. But wisdom is taught to us on earth by those who have come to know God, other men and women of faith. If you are here this morning, if you're a Christian today, I'm sure that you heard wisdom. You found wisdom in the gospel from another Christian, from a person who communicated that gospel to you. This is God's plan. And in our passage this morning, the communicator is a wise father teaching wisdom to his young son. And the father calls his hearers to stay on the path of wisdom, the path of truth, the path of God that leads to glory, that leads to heaven. This morning we'll be looking at Proverbs chapter 4, so turn with me if you will, to the book of Proverbs chapter 4. And if you're taking notes, our main point is this, stay on wisdom's path. For it leads to glory. Stay on wisdom's path, for it leads to glory. In three sections this morning verses 1 to 9, the legacy. Verses 1 to 9, the legacy. Verses 10 to 19, the path. Verses 10 to 19, the path. And verses 20 to 27, the heart. Verses 20 to 27, the heart. I pray that this morning. That we would have eyes to see the path and hearts that would follow on this path of wisdom that leads us to God. Let's read our passage as we begin. And follow along with me as I read all of Proverbs chapter 4. I'll be reading the whole chapter, Proverbs 4, starting in verse 1. This is God's word Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. And be attentive, that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my commands. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. And do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness. And drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. Turn your foot away from evil. This is God's word. Begin in point one, the legacy, verses one to nine. Look here at how the passage begins. This father teaching wisdom to his son. We see here that there is a generational legacy that is being passed down. Wisdom as a legacy handed down, handed off. From one generation to another, you see that he calls to his sons in verse 1 to listen and to pay attention to his instruction and to his insight. Now, this is interesting. Every other passage so far in the book of Proverbs has begun with my son. Here he says, O sons. Here he becomes plural in his calling. Now, did another son show up as he was speaking to a specific son, and all of a sudden he's speaking to sons? Well, I don't think so. I think what he's saying here is, oh, sons, because he has in mind the, the generational aspect of this legacy of wisdom. He's here speaking not just to this son, but he has in anticipation his son and his son's son and his son's 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 son. The hope is that wisdom is passed down from one generation to the next, from father to son. This was always God's plan that there would be in a godly home a father and a mother that knows God, that relates to God, and then that is diligent to teach their children about God, to help their children understand who God is, who we are as sinners before a holy God, and how it is that we can know Him by faith in His promises. And then walk with him. It was God's plan for there to be in the home. The establishment of the path of wisdom as children are taught. Not just how to walk, but how to walk with God. We see this laid out in Ephesians 6. As Christian parents are called to raise up their children in the the training of the Lord. We see this spelled out in the Old Testament for the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 6. That not only were they to love God themselves, but that they were to diligently teach the ways of God to their children from one generation to the next. The sad thing is that too often this doesn't happen. The parents assume that their children are going to pick these things up. And rather than specifically, diligently, and explicitly teaching things about God like we see in this passage to their children, parents too often are silent when it comes to the things of God. We see, though, throughout the rest of Scripture, that passages like this apply not just to our physical children, but to our spiritual children as well. We see in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul, speaking to his spiritual son Timothy and calling him a a true son in a common faith. We see him in 2 Timothy, which is probably the last book that he wrote before being martyred for his witness of Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. Here's Paul realizing that he is in a tradition of faithful ancestors, both physically as a Jew, but spiritually, as he follows on in the the generations of the faithful. And then he reminds Timothy of his own heritage, of a godly mother and a godly grandmother who had passed down the faith from one generation to the next. And he says in verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Timothy writes, 2 Timothy At the end of his life and his concern is that this legacy of wisdom, this legacy of wisdom encapsulated in the gospel and in the apostolic teaching is not lost as he is facing his death, but handed off from one generation to the next. And so in 2 Timothy 2 and verses 1 and 2, he encourages Timothy that what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What is Timothy doing, or what is Paul and Timothy doing here? Well, there's a legacy that is being handed down, a precious possession that's being entrusted from one generation to the next. And the legacy is the legacy of truth, truth in the gospel that must be guarded and protected and then handed down faithfully as it's taught in all of its uh, completeness. The whole counsel of God handed off from one generation to the next. As you consider how this applies, realize that this applies for all of us as Christians, whether we are parents or not, whether we are spiritual parents, having led others to the Lord or not. We here in the church can be handing on the legacy of wisdom to those around us, those that know Christ and those that don't. As you think about the things that you are passing off and handing on to others, I'm reminded of the reality that, as studies show, our children are not going to remember everything that we teach them as much as we desire. And even as a pastor, I know that you're not going to remember everything that I preach and teach to you. One professor, D.A. Carson, said that he's found that the things that his students tend to remember are the things that he's most excited about. That is, while they're not going to remember every single thing that he teaches them in his classes, and I know this as a pastor, I do know that those around me, my children, and even those who hear me teach in the church, are going to remember the things that excite me, the things that enliven me, the things that I think are really important, are going to be handed off from one generation to the next. So let me ask you by way of application, what is it? that excites you? What is it that is in your heart? What is it that, if I were to ask those around you, your friends, your family, your children, what is it that you really love? What is it that really gets you excited? What is it that you think is of the utmost importance? What is it that you find yourself talking about, raving about, excited about, posting on social media about? What is it that you love and desire and think is of greatest importance? Those are the things that others are going to remember about you. But for those of us who know God, it is the knowledge of God that should be the most precious thing to us. And that's what's happening in this next section, verses 5 to 9. You see here that wisdom is being held up, not just as a legacy to be handed down, but as the most valuable thing He he gets excited with these commands and repeats them over and over. Get wisdom, get insight. Get wisdom, get insight. Whatever you do, on the top of your shopping list, put wisdom, because this is the most precious thing. We think about the things that are most valuable to us. They aren't the things that may cost the most in this world. But the most precious thing that we can have on earth is a knowledge of God, a knowledge of Him that is found in His Word and found as spoken among His people. It is the most important legacy that can be handed down from one generation to the next. And it is the most precious thing that God has given to us, Himself, spoken in His very Word, offered in the Gospel, and offered to come into a relationship with God Himself. This is more precious than anything else that the world has to offer. He seems to be repeating a phrase from the very beginning of the book, the theme theme verse of of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 1.7, where he says, the beginning of knowledge is this, the fear of the Lord. But here he changes it, and he says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. In other words, yes, we must understand the fear of the Lord if we're going to have wisdom. But we must realize that a knowledge of God is the most important thing if we're going to get wisdom. Wisdom is described here as a woman. It's interesting, this metaphor is repeated throughout these first nine chapters of Proverbs. We have an older man teaching a younger man about the world, and many of the things he's going to talk about throughout the rest of the book of Proverbs includes the importance of finding A good wife. It's the subject of all good fathers' conversations with their young sons. How to spot a good woman and how to be warned against a bad woman. But here, not only is the father holding out what a a good wife looks like, he's holding up wisdom and using the image of a good wife as a picture of what wisdom is like. We've been learning in the Biblical Manhood and Womanhood class how God has created man and woman equal in dignity and in our ability to to image God, our our ability to know Him and to reflect what He is like. But He has also made us distinct and complementary, that men and women aren't exactly alike. They are created in order to complement one another and to work together with different abilities. But here the the woman is held out in her ability to give life and to promote human thriving. And wisdom is talked about here in this passage as wisdom being a woman as, as something to get, to embrace, to love. And like a godly wife, she will bless you. Wisdom is like such A godly woman, like a godly wife or mother who blesses those that are in her presence, those who are in a relationship with her. I can testify to this as someone who's married to a godly wife. In loving my wife, I am blessed. In loving my wife, all of her goodness blesses me. I get all of the benefits of being married to such a godly woman. As I embrace her and love her, she blesses me. You see that in verse 6. She will keep you. She will guard you. Verse 8, she will exalt you. She will honor you. She will place on your head, verse 9, a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. This is what wisdom will do if you embrace wisdom. If you embrace a true knowledge of God. As we consider here the importance of wisdom. Another application for parents, I wonder what legacy you are pursuing, what it is that you would like to leave behind for your parents. You know that the most important thing that you can leave for your children is not money. It isn't a house. It isn't an inheritance of possessions. But it is true wisdom, the knowledge of God that will be a blessing to your children, not for a short time here on earth, but for an eternity. And as we consider this as Christians in the church, let me encourage you Christians to see the gospel message that you have been entrusted with, a gospel message that leads you into relationship with God, to see it as the most precious possession that you own, the thing that is worth study and attention, that is worth searching the scriptures about, that is worth talking about with your Christian friends and encouraging them in the truth and with your non-Christian friends and family. Holding out the importance of the knowledge of God that comes to us in the gospel. This message that gives us a new heart that changes us so that we are able to see God and wisdom as the most important thing. This is the gospel message. A a message of sinners like us who have rebelled against a holy God. Coming back into a relationship with him through his grace and mercy. As the person of Jesus Christ, God become man died on the cross, paying the penalty that our sins deserved and offering for us life with God and with Christ forever. This gospel message should be our most precious possession. That's point number one, the legacy. Let's turn to verses 10 to 19. Point number two, the path. Point number two, the path. Let's pick up reading there in verse 10. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. A lot of the themes here in chapters 1 to 9 are repeated over and over again for emphasis. We see here things that we've already seen, talked about, that if you get wisdom, it will extend your life. That means both physically, as you're not taking part in the kind of evil that will lead to an early death, but much more spiritually, as the long life is promised is eternal life. We also see here this promise that if you're walking in the truth, you're not going to be stumbling into sin. Your steps will not be slowed down. But you see the importance here of this path, this way, this road of wisdom that must be not only entered into but stayed on. The The Bible talks about not only following after God but staying on that path. This is the doctrine in Scripture of the perseverance of the saints. That sounds like a big phrase, But the perseverance of the saints is a doctrine that says it is those Christians, not just to follow along for a, a time or a season, that will be shown to be true Christians, but those that persevere, those that stay on the path. Jesus talks in his parable of the soils and of the seeds of the kinds of men and women who follow for a time, for a season. But as they begin on the path, excited initially about this wisdom that God offers, about the gospel offer of eternal life, while they follow on the path for a little while, at some point they get off. At some point they begin following other paths, a desire for riches, a desire to avoid difficulty and persecution. And little by little, those that seem to be on the right path show all along that they were never truly God's people, that they were never truly Christian. The Apostle John talks about them in 1 John chapter 2. And he says that they were not really of us. They seemed to be, but they were not truly of us because they didn't remain with us. And they went out in order that it might be shown that they were not truly of us. Here, the Father is encouraging His Son, not just to follow after wisdom for a little while, or as long as it benefits Him, but to stay on the path, to not get distracted or to get tempted to follow other paths. Look then at verse 14 and following. He gets very specific with a warning about a particular kind of temptation. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Very strong warning coming from the Father. He's saying that there are temptations that are going to come. There are going to be people that will seek to tempt you, that will be very enticing. The things that they offer will be very attractive. But these people are so dangerous, and the things that they are seeking to attract you with are so destructive. You need to do whatever it takes to stay as far away from them as possible. Don't even put yourself in a place where you would be tempted particular kind of person that he has in mind we see in verses 16 and 17. It's these evil violent men that's been talked about in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He repeats this warning again, but is even stronger. Verse 16, they cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. He has a particular kind of Violent, evil men in mind here. These aren't the kinds of people who are hungry and are stealing in order to feed themselves, in order to buy bread. These people live to sin. It is their bread to do violence, to do wickedness. These are the kinds of violent people that are described in chapter 1 and chapter 2 as those that are in evil gangs. That are excited by violence. Who have bloodthirst, desire to do evil. And there is something attractive for a young man with such displays of power, and he wants his son to know a warning that these people, though there may be something about them that is attractive, that this is so dangerous for his soul to even consider following them, to get as far away as possible from them. I wonder as we think about this, what particular temptations are in your heart? Each Christian will have a particular set of temptations that they are susceptible to. Each man and each woman will be unique to some extent to the kinds of sin that are most attractive to them. Satan is going to come to you and tempt you where you're weakest, where the desires in your heart are the strongest for things that are opposed to God. Whether it's violent men like this, whether it's Rich men who offer the promise of riches, the promise of comfort, the promise of success, or whether it is the temptation of sexual immorality. There are all kinds of temptations that this world offers and all kinds of people that will seek to to offer it to you. And he doesn't say, You're strong enough, young son, to withstand temptation. No, he says, You are weak, young son. Do whatever you can to not put yourself in a place of temptation. Sometimes I hear Christians talk about their battle with sin with phrases like, I don't want to be legalistic about this. As if the concern of legalism is a free pass for us to live foolish lives and to not have discipline in our lives to keep ourselves from temptation. Do you see here that Rules are helpful for us at times as Christians to put things in our lives, to prepare for a day when we might be tempted, that it's good for a Christian to have things in their lives to protect them from temptation, whether it's accountability partners that you give permission to ask invasive, awkward questions on a regular basis. To make sure that even though you may not be tempted today, or maybe not this hour, but that there may be an hour that comes or a day that comes when you will be tempted to have men or women in your life who can ask you such awkward questions. Maybe it means putting find a friend on your phone so that people can track where you're going and ask you questions about where you were at a particular time and why you were there. Perhaps it would include something like software on your computer, on your phone that gives a report of the things that you're looking at to those that know you and love you and can help you fight sin. Let me encourage you, Christian, do whatever it takes to not be drawn in by sin's devices and to not be drawn onto the wrong path. It isn't legalistic to put such things in your life. It's wise. For those of us who are Christians, we gather together here not to show how strong we are, but to confess how weak we are. We actually gather together as a church and we are confessing together. We are sinners. We are weak. We need God and we need each other if we're to continue on this path. Continue on this road. This road that leads to life. As long as we are not drawn away on another path. Look at how he ends this section, verses 18 and 19. It's a beautiful picture. He says that the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. This image is beautiful. I don't know how many of us wake up early enough to ever see the dawn. But at the dawn, you get from darkness a little bit of light. That gets a little brighter and a little brighter. And it continues to get brighter and brighter until that sun peaks over the horizon. And then it gets brighter and brighter as that sun comes all the way up till full day in all of its brightness. The Father uses this image with His Son to talk about what the path of righteousness is like. We are in a dark world. And the path of righteousness for those of us who live in a dark world will have darkness. We will be regularly facing the effects of the fall, difficulties, trials, even persecutions. But the path of the righteous, though it may be full of difficulties, is only getting brighter and brighter for us. There is nothing, for those of us who know Christ, there is nothing of hell that we will ever experience. In other words, it's always going to get better for us as we're getting closer to home, closer to glory, and closer to eternity. When we will, on that final day, see Christ in all of His glory. See Him face to face. Not as in a mirror dimly, darkly, but face to face. When we will get to be with our Savior. When He will be the light of heaven, brightening us forever. The life of the Christian is only getting brighter and brighter. Yes, it will be full of difficulties and suffering. And persecution and pain. But Christian, if you're here this morning and facing such suffering and pain, let me encourage you. It's only getting better. And it will only get better for you with each passing step. As you follow on this path, this path that leads to glory, stay on it. Because it only gets better. And the best thing is once we've crossed over from this life into the next. But look at the contrast here contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Though it may seem in this life that the wicked prosper, that the wicked have good things, better things than the righteous. Look at this description, this poetic description in verse 19. No, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. The life of the unrighteous, the life of those who are wicked, who do not know God, they're only in the darkness. And the darkness is only going to get darker. They may feel like they are in the light and enjoying many good things in this world, but that is soon coming to an end. And while they may appear successful, they are in the dark when it comes to God. They do not know Him. They are foolish in their understanding. They are ignorant of the most important thing. They may have worldly wisdom. They may have wisdom when it comes to money, when it comes to success in the eyes of this world, but they do not have the light that matters, the light of wisdom. They do not know God. And because of this, they are in darkness and will only ever be in darkness, both now and forever. As you consider a passage like this, we think of how to apply it to our lives I had someone ask me this week, why is the father telling this young son to stay away from wicked people? Shouldn't we be a witness to them? It's a good question. Yes, we should be a witness to those around us in this world. And we should believe that even the most wicked are not too far away from salvation, that they can't yet be saved. It's true. But we must remember that the person here that's being talked about is a young son. He's an adolescent or a teenager. He's not at a place to be strong enough to withstand spending time with such wicked people. There's more of a danger, more of a risk of him being led astray than of him being a help and actually leading someone like this to Christ. And when it comes to actually your evangelism, it would be better for you as a Christian to invite your non-Christian friends to church or to spend time with you and other Christians than it would be for you to follow them into sin or into a bar, or into a club, thinking that in that setting you're going to be able to be a witness or a light to them. There's a greater temptation in a setting like that for a Christian to be led astray into sin than there is for hope for a non-Christian to come to Christ. Let me encourage you in your evangelism. Invite those around you to come to church with you. Invite them to spend time with you as you spend time with other Christians. There's a much greater opportunity for them as they are able to then hear the truth taught or preached or hear Christians talk to one another for them to have an opportunity to consider Christ. And let me encourage you, don't believe that any wicked are too far away from hope or from God's mercy. Even, even the thief on the cross was not too far from salvation if he would repent of his sins and trust in Christ. That's point number two, the path. Point number three, the heart. Point number three, the heart. Verses 20 to 27. I'm going to read this again. But pay attention as I read to the different parts of the body that the father refers to. It is an interesting poem, the way that he weaves the different uh, parts of us as human beings into this poetic prose, starting in verse 20. My son. Be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them. And put devious... Oh, sorry. Put away from you crooked speech. And put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. But then look at what is at the very center in verse 23. We have ears, we have eyes, we have flesh, we have our mouth, speech, our eyes, and our feet. But look at the center, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The father encourages his son in verses 21 through 22 to listen, to have his ear inclined to listen to wisdom, to have his eyes fixed, his sight fixed on the truth, and to not be swayed from one side to the next. And then he says, keep these things within your heart. And the emphasis on the center there in verse 23 is that the heart is the the center of the person. He then talks about our speech, our, our mouth, and our eyes in verse 25, and then our feet in 26 and 27. And he is concerned about every part of our being. He's concerned about the things we say. He's concerned about the things we look at. He's concerned about the places we go and the things that we do. But just as he's concerned about our whole being, he realizes that there's something behind it all that's of the most important, and it is our hearts. The hearts here in uh, the Hebrew language is a word referencing our, our center, our, our inner person. It includes both our mind and our heart. It's the desire center of the person. The part inside of you that, that has desires and the concern for this father is not just with what his child is saying and not just with what his child is looking at, and not just with what his child is doing and where he's going, though he's concerned about those things and they matter, he realizes that the most important thing is his son's heart. The most important thing is his inner being. I know that as a parent, very often I'm concerned with verses 24 and 25 and 26 and 27. I'm concerned with my children, what they're saying. Don't say that. What they're looking at. Don't, don't look at that shielding their eyes. Don't go there. Don't do that. I'm concerned with the things that they're doing, the things they're saying, the things they're looking at. And those are important. But do you see the most important thing, both for children and for all of us, the most important thing is our hearts. We can have children follow a code of, um, of action, We can have our children conform to our standards while they're in our home. But if we lose their hearts, if we do not gain their hearts in the time that they're with us, none of those things are going to matter. Because when they leave our home, our children are going to follow their hearts. Their their words, their eyes, their feet are going to go where their hearts direct them. You see, the most important thing for us both as children and as Christians, is our hearts, our desire center, the things that we value with our hearts. This clearly is what Jesus picks up on in his teaching in the New Testament. He says things like, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he realizes that your actions are going to follow based on what you treasure in your heart, what you desire most of all. Or out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The words of our mouth are simply mirroring the things that are inside of our hearts. And do you see that the thing here that is most important is having a heart that loves God. Having a heart that knows Him. And having a heart that values not just who God is, but listens to Him. That desires to be in a relationship with Him. To trust Him and to follow Him. Those of us who... Love God, we'll have ears to hear his words. We will have mouths that speak the truth that we hear from him, and we will have feet that follow Christ. There is here being held out for us a warning as well as a hope. The warning is that we must keep our heart with all vigilance. This is a verse that's often referenced with couples as they're considering dating or courtship or marriage to guard your hearts. There may be some application here, but I don't think this is the most important thing that the, the, the writer of Proverbs is talking about in this passage. Now, is there something to be said for guarding our hearts romantically? Absolutely. We should guard our hearts romantically as we are young and considering marriage and not allow our hearts to get entangled before we're ready. But do you see that the thing that he's talking about here is so much more encompassing than simply romantic relationships for single people? What's being talked about is something that applies for single as well as married people. Even married people must guard their hearts. All Christians must keep their hearts with all vigilance. We must have a concern to see what it is that our hearts are desiring. And we must bring our hearts to God and desire Him to enrapture us. So that the most important thing to us is God, knowing Him, pleasing Him, and obeying Him. Let me encourage you, Christian. Do you keep your heart? Have you devoted time to self-reflection where you consider the things that are in your heart? Where you consider your words and your actions and the things that you're looking at because you see them as mirrors, reflections of what's going on inside. Do you bring your heart to God and pray to Him about the things that you desire that you shouldn't be desiring? About the things that you're setting your heart on that you shouldn't be setting your heart in? the things that you're hoping for that shouldn't matter to you and asking him to create in you a clean heart. As we consider this passage, think of Christ in Matthew chapter 7 holding up for his people that there are ultimately two kinds of paths. There is Matthew 7 Verses 13 and 14. Two gates, two paths, two roads. Enter by the narrow gate, he says. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You realize that there ultimately are two kinds of paths. Only two. There's a path of wisdom. It's narrow. It is difficult in this life, but it leads to life. And the path of wisdom only gets brighter and brighter until that full day when we will stand before Christ. But there is a broad path, a path that's easy to go down, a path that is like swimming downstream, that everyone in this world naturally goes on. But that path, though it may seem pleasurable for a season, leads to death and darkness. As you look back at verses 18 and 19, this path of the righteous, let me remind you that our Savior Jesus took the path of the righteous. But for Him, it was a path that led to darkness. It was a path that led to taking upon Himself all of the darkness and the wrath that our sins deserved. He took a path, a path that led Him to death, that led Him to suffering and pain on our behalf. He took a path that led to suffering, to punishment, and to death, the darkness of death, so that we could follow him, and in following him, follow on a path of righteousness that does not lead to death and darkness, but only leads to light and to hope. Let me encourage you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, Jesus Christ, God become man, went to death so that you could have life. He went and embraced the darkness of sin and death and faced the wrath that your sins deserved on the cross so that we could live in the light of dawn and in the light of full day forever in a relationship with Him and with His Father in heaven forever. Let me encourage you if you're here and you do not know Christ. Run to Him. Turn away from your sin Trust in Him as your Savior and find in Him wisdom and light and hope both now and forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You that You have revealed to us Yourself in Your Word. We thank You that You have taught us about wisdom that You have offered to us in Your Word the way of wisdom. We pray that we would be a people who are not foolish, but who are wise. a People who listen to you as the only voice that matters. And in listening to you, find life that extends from now through eternity. We pray that we would be a people that not only know wisdom for ourselves, but that speak wisdom to those around us, to those that will listen, both our children physically, our children spiritually, and even to those who do not yet know you. We pray that such wisdom would overflow to those around us for the good of your people and for your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.